listening to Thunder Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. She is an educator and speaker, Cree and Trinidadian, active in the Indigenous community and definitely a role model for First Nations and non-First Nations youth. We were thrilled to have Tasha Spillett in the studio to talk about her role as an educator and student. She recently completed a master's degree in land-based education. We also chatted about how she weaves traditional knowledge and teachings into a modern day 21st century classroom. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tasha Spillett. So we have Tasha here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you for the invitation. It's so wonderful to meet you. And just to learn a little bit more about you, I know that you are an educator and a speaker and a singer and a student, so can you briefly tell us uh, a little bit about your journey of how you got to where you are today? So I think it's like important to start with some relationality, like where I'm from, and that kind of has set the course of where I've where I've gone and where I where I hope to go. So. Um, so my on my paternal side, my dad is from Trinidad, the island of Trinidad. And on my maternal side, my mom is uh, Nehael and Inouak from northern Manitoba and northern Saskatchewan and Treaty 5 and Treaty 6. And born and raised in the city, um, just my mom and my sister. And education has always been um, kind of a love of my life. I have a love for learning and a love for, you know, meeting people and talking to people and um and big ideas and kind of fearlessly pursuing those ideas, but with the support of a lot of amazing, amazing people. Like I, if I've learned anything in my life so far, it's that um, nothing great is accomplished on your own, that it absolutely requires the love and support of the people who rally around you. Um, and that's um, something that has really carried me through the things that I've done. So. You know, I I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher ever since I was little, and so I went right from um, high school into the integrated education program at the University of Winnipeg, and I did my BA and my BEd, and and then I got hired. Thankfully um, and very fortunately, I got hired right out of university, and I worked three years in the public school system, and I actually um, had a difficult time working in the public school system as an Indigenous woman. Um, and seeing knowledge and knowledge transmission from a very different paradigm than what is than what holds up the public school system. Uh, so being uh, having been raised in a in a ceremonial context and in a traditional way, uh, I think that um, I, I saw education and I saw knowledge as being something very different from the structure of the of the formal education system. So I wanted to do something different, and I went and I did my master's degree in Indigenous land-based education, and it's a program through the University of Saskatchewan, so shout out to the University of Saskatchewan and the faculty um, in Educational Foundations, they're amazing. And that program totally set me on a different course. So um, learning from land bases, including my traditional territory, but other nations' land bases, like I had a chance to go and learn from the Shtatlian t- uh, territory in Lillooet, BC. Uh, and we went and learned, uh, did a study tour with the traditional knowledge keepers in Hawaii. And people are always like, 
Yeah, I did a study tour in Hawaii in January. So oh. my family and colleagues at home <laughs> were like, yeah, tough. yeah, <laughs> poor you studying in Hawaii. Yeah. But it was it was absolutely beautiful. And uh, just changing how I saw how the possibilities. So I think when I when I was in the school system, I was a little bit disillusioned and frustrated. And I was like, you know, sorry, <laughs> is this all is this all we can do for our children? We know that the dropout rates for indigenous learners are so high compared to their non-indigenous counterparts. Obviously, something is going on. And if the mandate of the education system is to support all learners, then we have to ask ourselves, are they dropout rates or are they pushout rates? Because if our schools aren't meeting the needs of learners to the point where our learners are exiting those systems, then it's actually not um, it's not the fault of our learners and the families. It's it's absolutely the system's job to address those to address those gaps. Um, and so. That's what my graduate degree, the work that my graduate degree has inspired me to do. Looking at education, how can we do education differently so that it's meeting the needs of, of students and families and community? And that's where I'm at right now. So I've, I've just completed my MED in, in Indigenous Land-Based Ed, and um, I've applied to do my doctorate, and my doctorate will be in International Indigenous Land-Based Ed. And I'm super excited and also, like, uh, like I'm 85% excited and think it's awesome. And then there's that other uh, small percentage where I'm like, oh my God, like what am I doing yeah. back in the student seat, which is feels stressful. But um, I, I ha when I decided to do my doctorate, I really had to ask myself, um, why, why, what is the reason? And for me, it had to be more than acquiring that piece of parchment. It had to be more than being Dr. Spillett. Um, and it came down to my territory. It came down to this place and the needs of our community. And I like I kind of um, have thought of education as as tools and acquiring tools and sharpening tools. And and that's what I see um, getting a doctorate as being as an, another um, tool set to be able to build community and help community. And that's really important to me. And are you are you still teaching right now? Or? Yeah, so I'm okay. I'm like I feel like a ping pong between the University of Winnipeg and the University of Manitoba. So I teach right now um, in the Faculty of Education. I teach a course called Introduction to Aboriginal Education, which is the mandatory course for all teacher candidates. And then at the University of Manitoba, I teach in the Department of Native Studies their Introduction to Native Studies courses. To specifically with the access students and so it's it's been this has been my first year teaching at the undergraduate level and it's been quite a steep learning uh, curve but totally exciting and something that I've really enjoyed all of it except for the marking but that's I think <laughs> that's like the life of, a, of an educator it's all great except for the marking yeah but aren't you supposed to get a, an assistant or a, something to help you with that at that level <laughs> so I actually um, because I, I try really hard to build really strong relationships with my students. So part of me, maybe this is like the type A personality of me, can't relinquish that role to someone else because, you know, I know I know who my students are. I know where they're coming from. I know the discussions we've had in class. So I feel like if I bring in a third party, there's not going to be all that backstory that informs 
uh, informs the marking process. So maybe if I ever get a class of like 200 students, I'll be like, oh my gosh, give me a TA. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but for right now, it's like stressful, but manageable. Mm -hmm. And I really like that, that part of the relationship of being able to be really hands on with students. Yeah, that makes sense, especially in that uh, program. What little I know of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other, um, Kevin Lamro, yeah, who I spoke with last month on the podcast. Oh, great. Um, he's part of that program as well. Yeah, so Kevin yes. also, he's um, a faculty member um, at the University of Winnipeg in the Faculty of Ed. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. But yeah, it seemed that there was that, the importance of developing the relationships with the students was really key. Um, in that program so and that's yeah. the beauty of small class sizes yeah. like I've honestly I've felt so spoiled this year um, because some of my colleagues have like in one section will have upwards of 150 students and like I I can't imagine not walking into class and being able to address my students by name and make reference to their families and their work uh, so I feel really fortunate to be able to do that yeah yeah that's awesome um, so I'm before I ask you about your teaching experiences, um, I'll ask you to go a little bit more in depth into that. But um, I wanted you to maybe talk about your own inspirations as a student first, like who, um, specifically educators, I guess, who've really made an impact um, on your life. So I kind of, like, I'm a super nerd. So all <laughs> of my, like, all of the people who I really look up to, um, have been trailblazers, like indigenous, mostly women who have really um, opened or like cut the trail for, mm. for me in the work that I do. Uh, and so if I can show, like send them love, I always take the opportunity to send them love because I really do think especially indigenous women academics and racialized women academics often don't get celebrated. Their work doesn't get celebrated in the way that... Um, it should. So uh, Dr. Alexandra Wilson from Opascot Cree Nation, she's a, um, a faculty member at the University of Saskatchewan, absolutely brilliant woman. Um, her and her family were the like brain birth, the Indigenous land-based cohort at the University of Saskatchewan. And, you know, she is she's so supportive. Um, Dr. Verna St. Dennis, an amazing, another Cree woman academic doing anti-racism work at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Carlo, uh, Carla Williamson, amazing Inuit uh, scholar. My, like, I have a, a super fangirl over Dr. Linda Smith out of New Zealand, a Maori academic. Um, so I, I could, I honestly could go could on go and on. on. Um, I, like, my, um, a lot of my thoughts thoughts have been really held up by um, by uh, racialized feminist scholars like Bell Hooks and Angela Davis and and like I said like I honestly think when I read when I'm reading and I'm studying I feel like I'm sitting in a room with like a bunch of really amazing aunties who are like giving oh, yeah. me all these tidbits on life and the world and 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 introspective guidance when I read their work. And so I'm so um, I'm so blessed to have some of them really present in my life and then be able to have access to their thoughts, to the work of other other women. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously you love to learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is there, could you maybe mention a couple of things that you've learned from your students uh, that have stuck with you? So I think that one of the, 
I think that if you asked especially new teachers something, um, a part of their experience that they didn't anticipate, it will, would be how much you actually learn from your students. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with, um, when I was a high school teacher, I worked with um, with students who would have been identified as being, you know, like, quote, unquote, at risk. And I actually don't use that terminology in my work, but that's how the school system labels, labels young people. Um, and just their, um, like, their commitment to be in that space um, and to, to be able to thrive in that space. But something that I really learned is that, you know, if you show up for students, they will show out for you. And when I say show out, it's like if you have expectations of your students that are like that they are amazing and that they're smart and that they're kind and that they, you know, they work well together. If that is what you go in, if that, if that is what you are manifesting for your classroom and for your students, um, your students will embody that in every way. And so I think um, that we, you know, we have um, like that's manifest destiny. So when I say manifest destiny, that's like you are creating through your thoughts and your actions what will be. And I think that often works against indigenous and racialized students in the school system because they're labeled so um, so heavily that we are creating these um, we are creating these categories or these these boxes for our students that don't allow them to surpass in any way. And my what my students have taught me is like, you know, you go in and you're treating your students as relatives and that you're there to support their learning uh, and they will they'll flourish. And I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it time and again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really awesome. <laughs> it's great to hear. Um, so I guess probably more in, regarding your the high school students that you taught um, is what are or at risk students, as you said, um, what are some techniques that you use to try and engage them in their learning? So one thing um, that's been really effective for me was uh, creating relationality. So relationality refers to um, um, the structures in which we honor each other as relatives. So not to say that I wouldn't have a teacher-student relationship, but that to really honor the fact that, you know, we are we are responsible to each other to create a classroom community that will support all of our well-beings. And so in terms of um, classroom guidelines, I, I typically used uh, a couple like uh, Neheo laws or indigenous ways of being like so how do we support one another to have a good life and to lead a good life in our classroom environment and how do we weave love into our actions um how do we weave love into how we talk about each other how do we lead with love what does that look like in our classroom how do we develop a classroom culture based on those things and so rather than having an enumerated one to 20 classroom rule list like don't wear hats in class don't um, don't get up from your seat without raising your hand and all these things that are really um, linear and structured and can be triggering for some students, especially Indigenous students who have um, like a residential school uh, trauma in their families, which is, you know, the majority of our families. So those things can be quite triggering. So how do we switch 
to honor our indigenous ancestry and the knowledge that flows from that ancestry to inform our classroom rather than just as an additive to our classroom. So uh, rather than an aside or an addition, how do we use um, that brilliance and that wealth of cultural knowledge to create a f- or to lift up a framework for education? And I found that doing that in my classroom has has not only been really um, affected for effective for the learning of indigenous students, but also like just in generally like all students. So all students feeling belonging in the classroom, feeling like their voice is honored, um, feeling safe, uh, which are all, you know, meeting the core needs of, of a being, which is important. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great kind of segue into my next question, which um, was about how you weave the traditional practices and knowledge and culture into sort of the modern day classroom. Mm-hmm. So if you could talk a little bit more about that. So I think that there's I think that it's important to to honor the fact that culture is not stagnant. It's not like um, these things that we do like quote unquote culturally are frozen in time. Like we are continuously creating and we're reproducing culture, but we're also creating culture um, and and just living as indigenous people. So, um, but it is important to me to to honor the land that we that we occupy, we exist in relationships with, and how can we how can those relationships inform what we're doing in the classroom? So I've done a lot of outdoor education, like um, I'm going to correct myself, not outdoor education, land based education. Land-based, yeah. So to take um, to have the learning be outside where the land is the teacher and the land is the text, and we are. We are experiencing those things and then evaluating or acquiring learning from those things. So um, this is something that I did with my undergraduate students this, sem- this past semester was to have, you know, go out into the land and consider what, like this is a, a very popular conversation on campus, but what does indigenizing the institution look like? What does indigenizing academia look like? Um, and so we went for a walk around the campus and we were like, you know, evaluating. And you know what the best the best marker for indigenizing the academy we found on campus was the geese. Because oh, the geese on campus, uh, those are their traditional nesting grounds. And they come back every spring, no matter what the university has put up on that space. And so it's like land reclamation. The geese are the geese are amazing teachers in both decolonization and in land reclamation. And so that's an example of how do we learn from the land in terms of uh, like finding ways to inform the ways we want to do our work. Uh, and so that was a really interesting co- a class that we did. Yeah. Yeah. That um, it reminds me of I take an evening class at CMU and I, I heard the professor recently mentioned, um, you know, indigenizing the curriculum, and he he didn't quite know, he wasn't quite clear on what that meant, or how, what it was going to look like, or how it was going to happen, but when you said geese, that was my thought, because geese are on that campus all the time, mm-hmm. and they're coming and going, and yeah, so that that's a, that's a really great example. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, I, I think that a lot of people are unsure of what indigenizing the academy I think so, yeah. looks like, yeah, um, because it's, some might say that it's like putting trying to push a round peg in through a square cutout, uh, and can we do these things in really authentic ways? 
is indigenizing synonymous or not or not with decolonization um, and so these are really important conversations that we need to be having within academia but also within the communities that we're accountable to mm-hmm. do you think um do you think it's possible like i think of universities you know they're so structured and linear what do you think so I've seen a lot of important work being done and I would never want to dismiss like the amazing work that's being done because I can I feel a difference from when I did my undergrad to where I'm at now. Like I've seen I've seen differences. Do I think that in its entirety is it is it possible? I I am uncertain. I can't answer that. Um, because I've also seen a lot of resistance to doing really authentic um, structural change work. And that's what it requires. Um, so I, I do want to honor the work of the University of Winnipeg Aboriginal Students Association for getting the Indigenous course requirement, course requirement. I think that like is amazing and a, and a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but do I understand that at the core of a system is a nucleus that is designed to reproduce that system? I, I, I cannot, it would, I would be amiss if I didn't acknowledge that that is the fact. And so what I know is that when you challenge a system and that when you begin to require a system to have structural change, that system is very resistant in a lot of different ways. And so I think that... Um, I think that we can't expect for things just to happen very quickly. Although I like I I know that we need it to happen as quickly as possible, but those systems definitely they they have a way of recreating themselves over and over, and that's how they're designed. That's exactly what they're designed to do. Yeah, yeah. I um, Kevin and I talked a bit about the the require the course requirement at the U of W. Um, did you have you heard? Um, resistance to that or well both sides have you heard positive things or negative things oh yeah I've heard both so I know that um the student body and this is just from from reading different articles the general student body was a little bit confused as to what um was to what the purpose was the intention and then how much it would cost them Mm -hmm. what it would look like the logistics of it and but I do know that the university has been doing a lot of work to alleviate those those concerns and to address those questions. And so what I'm hoping, especially as a as a lecturer at the university, is that there will be a cultural change at the university where they'll see this indigenous course requirement as being a valuable part of their learning as a person who exists on these territories. Uh, and I think that, you know, it. It is an amazing opportunity for uh, for academics and for lecturers to get really creative and develop courses that that acknowledge indigenous knowledges and in indigenous experiences. And isn't that our job? You know, so I also like, you know, I also rem- like kindly remind my colleagues that that is our job as as educators to be constantly working on our own development and this is an opportunity to do it. Like this is an opportunity for people in departments who have maybe don't see themselves connected to indigenous knowledges mm-hmm. or indigenous learners, like math and science, to say, you know what, 
this is amazing. Let's look at how, let's look at indigenous math knowledge, indigenous science knowledge, because it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. It's just this, uh, it's actually the institution that needs to catch up and looking at how and how um, transformative this knowledge can be in not only the lives of our students directly, but in how our society will create itself going forward. Do we want to take? Do we want to take uh, structural inequity and uh, and oppression and marginalization marginalization as we go forward, or do we want to do this work in this moment in time to ensure that we are existing in more equitable relationships with one another? And so that's an opportunity that we have, especially as educators. And so the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission you know, identified education as being the key to reconciliation. And what I would say is that an old key can't possibly open up new doors. The education system that we currently have was used as a tool of assimilation. And and that that's been its work in a lot of different ways. And so we need to change the key. If education is going to be the key for, to reconciliation, we absolutely have to change the key. Um, to, to open a new door and to go forward. And so that's our responsibility to imagine how that might might look and then to do the very hard but and courageous work to make it happen. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so maybe switching gears a little bit, um, I wanted to talk about some of the activism you do, if you consider yourself, or if you think of yourself as an activist, and what are some causes that you've been, I mean, you've already mentioned some, but uh, some other work that you're, that you're doing. So I think that that word activist is like, you know, I uh, I have a kind of like a weird, like love-hate relationship with it. Yeah. I think that often, um, that often like media wants to have a way to identify someone. Yes. And so they'll be like, you know, um, so they they ascribe these like certain words to to people, and so what I would see the work that I do as honoring Wakotawin, which means like your kinship, and so the work that I do is all about how to make a better community. It's all about the relative, my relatives, and it's all about our territory, and so things that like speak to my heart are um, the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women. Um, I think that this this country has so much work to do um to do on on this issue and it's you know it's not it's not that our women just you know go missing it's not that our women um just you know like um go off in thin air there are there are societal issues that are creating these realities in our communities and if we don't address the root of those issues we're going to continue to see these experiences happen over and over and over again and we can't like that's to me I can't even allow that to be a possibility in my mind so what we have to do is the very difficult work of addressing the root of these issues which you know is misogyny classism racism um, heteronormativity there's all of these intersection intersection intersecting issues that are producing these realities um and so yeah murder and missing indigenous women is really at <laughs> at the core of my heart um looking at the education system and how to how to build a more equitable education system is really important to me um land the protection of land and water um to me like you know 
if we push the earth past its breaking point, the fallout will be indiscriminate. So that means that it won't matter like what culture you come from, what language you speak, what uh, class rank you occupy, um, the like the consequences of our absolute gluttony uh, will be felt by everyone. Everywhere. Yeah. And and so I, I actually don't think a lot of people realize um, how much power and potential we have as individuals to make changes in our community, especially on land and water. But we do, especially indigenous people like, you know, our treaty, our treaty rights are one of the only things that are that protect land and water. And I think that um, that us asserting um, asserting our sovereignty over our territories is also something that will be really instrumental uh, in protecting our land and waters. You know, it, it makes me like. We know ourselves as Indigenous people, our, indige our Indigenous identity is intrinsically attached to our land bases. So what happens when we no longer have connections to our land bases because of things like resource extraction or um, quote unquote development? So I think of, you know, hydro developed communities. When, when the names of the communities speak to the power and the life of the, of the water, when the water is diverted or no longer exists because of hydro devastation, how do the people know themselves as connected to their territories? And when you no longer know how you're connected to your territory, how do you, how do you imagine how to carry your community forward? And so, you know, things like, uh, land devastation are completely and entirely connected to the societal like issues that we are seeing on our community like the mm -hmm. violence that women indigenous women experience is directly connected to the violence uh, environmental violence on our territories um the high suicide rates in our northern communities mm -hmm. you know like like that i think we need to be looking for the solutions past the direct experiences of our young people. We need to be looking at, you know, like how how is it that our communities are so fractured? Where does that actually where is that where was that key point in that um that are creating all these fractures and how do we address that rather than the symptoms that are coming from that? Um, and it's a lot of work, but mm -hmm. um it's also uh, it's also so like necessary. Like I, you know, I'm always reminded like when I have a hard time with the work because it can get really heavy. I'm always reminded that this work didn't start with us. It won't end with us, but it is our responsibility to carry it for this moment in time. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm fed, my spirit is fed by the people who have carried this work and done amazing, amazing things to ensure the health and well-being of our communities to this point. And I'm reminded that they never gave up. It was not an option. And I think that, you know, that's something that I remind young people is, you know, us even living, breathing, talking, laughing is all testament 
to the fact that, you know, we descend from the absolute strongest of the strong of our nations because we defy where we defy colonialism. We weren't we were not supposed to be here. We were not supposed to still exist. And we do. In fact, we we exist in abundance like we, you know, fastest growing population. So we continue to make life happen. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't that like such a resistance is is not always a blockade or, you know, throwing your body over a railroad track, although I would support direct actions like that. Sometimes (laughs) resistance is just about loving yourself and loving your community and being healthy and making positive decisions and, you know, lifting people up with your words and your actions and having babies in a healthy way. And and that's resistance, too. And and to me, it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. So what other advice would you give a young person who's struggling or not sure of their identity or what else would you would you tell them? Um, be like like to my like younger relatives, you know, my always and I would say be fearless, uh, operate always from a place of faith instead of a place of fear. Be fierce because sometimes it's not easy, like navigating systems that weren't designed to suit you is not easy. So you're you're sometimes you're going to have to be tough, <laughs> but it's also OK to be uh, to be gentle and to take care of one another. That's the other thing. Um you know, especially when the odds are against you, you need to be looking at the people around you as, you know, as brothers and sisters and like really taking care of one another. So that involves like Facebook. I always talk to young people around Facebook because I see so much violence on Facebook oh, around yeah. the it's, way that young people talk to one another. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so be mindful of your words and your actions and the people who the people who are from your community you need each other because if we don't have each other's back we you know we will rise together we will fall together and that's just a, like that's a natural law that we've seen in communities over and over and over again but where we are at right now we we have a we have the opportunity to choose we are not going to act in unhealthy ways we acknowledge where our trauma comes from um, but we are going to work really really hard to to be good relatives and, you know, build beautiful nations. Yeah. And so what's next for you? You mentioned PhD. Is that yeah, I'm, in this very near future? <laughs> so I, I just put in my, my application to do my PhD a few weeks ago. So I'll hear back in, I guess, in another, in another few weeks. And so um, that's my next my next journey. But I, I feel like I feel really, really excited. But I also, like I said earlier, feel kind of a, a, I'm cautiously excited because yeah. I know I'm very aware <laughs> that it will be a lot of work. But like I said, like I have an amazing family and an amazing team. And so that's what's next. And and I don't know exactly where that work will lead me, but I know that it will involve um, doing community-based stuff, and and other like other than work stuff, I would love to travel. There's places that I would love to see. So, um, first on my list is New Zealand. I have like a super geographic crush on on New Zealand, and <laughs> I do too. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it looks beautiful. Yeah. I haven't been, and I really really want to go. 
so that's my what's next yeah yeah and i heard that their relationship with australia is kind of like canada and the u.s mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so interesting and they you know they have their own of course they have their own colonial history yeah um but especially for the work that they've done in education i yes. think that there are things that we can learn that we can implement here um that would be really amazing for our communities yeah absolutely there's um one of the things we're doing here at the center is the reading recovery program, and that was started in by a New Zealander, and now, you know, bringing it to Canada and the First Nations. Amazing. So yeah, yeah, so much good work there. Mm-hmm. But I think we'll end it there. Excellent. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. That was so a great much. share. It was so wonderful to have you here. Thank you yeah. for inviting me in. Yeah. And that concludes our interview with Tasha. We'd like to thank her so much for being here. And we hope you join us next month for another edition of Thunder Radio. Thanks for tuning in.